Welcome to the Practical Church Revitalization Podcast. We look at revitalization in real time, examining the ups and downs of revitalizing and replanting historic and legacy churches throughout New England and the U.S. Now here's your hosts.
to 44. So, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of, his, of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And when they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the pole. They sent Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawn near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known that this day the things that make peace. For now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the, down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So what do we see? We see Jesus comes in, right? He comes in, we, we, we see what, what happens. He, he comes in right on, 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 on the dog, excuse me, because we were, as we're prophesied, the people, Celebrate, Hosanna, they put their coats down, they, 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 in essence, worship Jesus coming in. And of course, then, then we see the Pharisees, who are very happy about that. And they, you know, they, they, they tell Jesus, they're like, well, you know, who are, who are, basically, in essence, Lord, who are you that you would get this sort of worship? Tell, tell your disciples to stop it. He's like, I mean, if they don't worship you, the very rocks will worship you. And then he weeps over Jerusalem. So we see some important things here. The first thing that we need to see is that Jesus' entry points to his divinity. His entry points to his divinity. Can we get that up on the screen? Uh, it is clear because there is some rearrangement that goes on, right? So what do we see? We see all the way back in Zechariah, that is, is Sam read earlier, that what? That they knew it was coming. They said that there will be a, a, a donkey that he will ride. And so Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead of him. And he's like, hey, go get that donkey. So, so how does he know all of this? I mean, we, one might try to argue that Jesus, you know, under cover of night, sneaks ahead, ties the donkey there, talks to the owners, sets it all up in advance. Or the, the one that's, that's, that's the clear one is that Jesus is God knows all that will come to pass and allows prophecy and history to play out that it might follow exactly what was said hundreds of years earlier. That's what makes the most sense. The donkey that's never been ridden. I mean, think about it. A donkey that's never been ridden. And then the owner just willingly is like, like, sure, go ahead. Just, just, yeah, just take the donkey. I mean, look what it even says. It says the Lord needs, has need it. When they ask you what you're doing, say the Lord has need of it. I mean, think about that for a second. Somebody walks up to your house 
with your brand new car parked up, parked up front, you know, not even driven, like delivered off of the bed of a truck, just like lowered down into your driveway. Somebody's like, hey, we need your car. The Lord needs to, needs to drive it. You'd be like, no, he doesn't. I mean, I'd, I'd, be, like, I'd be like, you know who's driving my car? I haven't even driven my truck, and you lost your mind. But that's the case, right? Do we see this? And, and, and it's not like, but even to look at the greeting, it's not like these two disciples walk off and they're like, hey, what's up, man? It's not like they even know this guy. They just roll and they take it, the guy's like, they just start taking it. I mean, listen, I grew up on Westerns. My grandpa, huge Western fan. I, I probably shouldn't have watched a lot of Clint Eastwood movies when I was five, but, you know, we're not going to, it's too late to change that now, right? But you guys ever see what happens to horse thieves in the Old West? There's not a conversation. You steal someone's horse, they're not like, hey, wait, what are you taking that for? No, you get shot. Or you get hanged. It's, by the way, it's hanged, not hung, in case anybody, anybody was curious. But so, so what happens here is they take it. And it's not like it's the old dilapidated, you know, 20-year-old model that they're ready to trade in for a new one. No, it's a brand new, never been ridden, like, Brand uh, off the showroom floor donkey. And he just willingly gives it away. It's also interesting because Jesus knew it was there ahead of time. I mean, he, he sent them ahead. It's not like they were coming from Jerusalem. No, they came from a different direction. And he sent the guys ahead and was like, hey, it's going to be there. I'm also always curious when I read these things what's going on in the disciples' head? I mean, honestly, like, I, maybe I'm the only guy who thinks that way, I don't know. But I'm always curious as, like, what's going on with the, the disciples at? I mean, I'm, it just always, blows. I mean, we're at the end of his three-year ministry, so part of me is like, at this point, they're probably like, yeah, it's going to be there. I mean, like, it's going to be there. We, we, we all know it. it it's, it's inevitable. Like, this is what's going to happen. But the part of me wonders if they're always, if they still continue to be in awe and continue to be in doubt, because we do see their response after he's arrested. And they don't look like guys who just understand and believe what's going on. They look like guys who are very doubtful, who are very worried, who are very concerned. So it, it is, you know, I'm always a little curious what goes on in their heads. And if they're like, why are we getting sent on this air? I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know, I guess I always digress to having been in the military. You know, when, when you get sent ahead on an air like that, it's never like a good deal. You know what I'm saying? Like, like when you get sent ahead on something like that, it's never like, oh, sweet. We get it, you're like, oh, really? That's like what you sent the junior guys to do. You also got to wonder if it's, those, if it's the two disciples who are like, dude, why, don't, why are we the ones who to walk ahead and get Man, this is awful. Why do we have to do the, the mindless errand? This is ridiculous. I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I was always kind of curious. And then I'm, and then I'm curious if, if they're as amazed as I hoped I would be when it all comes to pass, when they get there. And the guy's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Take it to Jesus. I mean, I, I'm just, it always just things that go through my mind. It also parallels the coronation of Solomon. If we jump all the way back to the Old Testament, we see that Solomon is, is coronated, is, is, gets his coronation as king. This is kind of what happens, right? Is that they, 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 they lay their coats down, they lay their palm branches down, they, they, they celebrate him as the king who is coming in. Uh, and it's an act of homage. If you notice in the, in the Luke narrative, the palms being laid down are not something that's talked about. Um, and most scholars don't say that, see that as like, as a contradiction between the other accounts. They just see it as, as Luke kind of known as audience. Luke's writing this, and it's probably going to be a little more politically charged just because of who Luke's audience 
is as he wrote this. So he was probably like, you know what? Maybe we just did the Paul leaves out, you know, because I don't want to like, I want to keep the main thing, the main thing that Jesus came in. Maybe if it's not so important, but it would be an act of homage, and you can see why that would be an issue in the first century. So in the first century, they 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 believe in this essence of emperor worship, like the like if you went against the emperor, if you said there was another king beside the emperor of Rome, then that could be a crime that you would be killed for. Even if you were a Christian, you were like, well, I, I place Jesus as the king. And then, you know, of course, he's, he's put the Roman authorities. So we, but, but they would say, well, hold on a second. You, in Rome, now, you have to 100% be in on the emperor. And if there's anything you can do in Rome, then you're in opposition to that. And even by you saying that Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords, that's enough to get you in trouble. So it's a little curious. And most people believe that Luke left that out as a way. I think sometimes, you know, there's some wisdom to that. Um, it, it is about keeping the main thing the main thing. Um, it's easy sometimes as we share the gospel or we talk to people about Jesus to get sidetracked by things that are important but aren't the gospel. So I had a conversation with someone like, last week or, uh, or maybe even, some, even on Wednesday. We were just talking about you know, sharing the gospel and evangelism. And I always say, you know, for me, yeah, sure, I'm willing to point out that we're all sinners. But i got to be honest, if somebody's caught up in a, in a, in a lifestyle of sin or in a in a behavior that is uh, one that is always sinful, I, I, I don't make that a main thing. Because why? I mean, the most part of people know. I mean, at least, all, at least somewhere deep inside us, we know that we do stuff that's not right. And I, my thought, my process on that, my thought on that is, I would rather share the gospel to somebody and see them come to faith in Christ and know that the Holy Spirit's going to be the one who works in and through them in those things than trying to be the moral police of people who aren't believers. And somebody quotes me on that, I'll probably blow up on Facebook like, I, like something that happened to me the other day. But, but, but that's the case, right, is that I, I think it's so many times that we get hung up on things that aren't what's important. And I think we see Luke do something on this, is that his, he, his, he doesn't take anything away by not talking about the qualities. He just keeps the main thing the main thing. Jesus comes in to Jerusalem and people celebrate that's what it comes in, down to, right? So we see that. We also see that Jesus' entry fulfills prophecy. We see that Jesus' entry fulfills prophecy. It was foretold, look at Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal? The donkey. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. See, part of the problem was that the first century, Jew, the first century Jews weren't expecting the Messiah to come in a way that was coming to lead spiritually. They were so anticipating a political leader. See, they wanted their freedom from Roman rule. They wanted their freedom from what they saw as Roman oppression. And the problem is they came to Jesus and they saw him come with expectations that they already possessed. 
They weren't looking for the Messiah to come to save them from their sins and to reconcile them to God. They wanted earthly, their, their vision was on the earthly. Well, we want the Messiah to come that we can be set free from Rome. I think sometimes that's the issue that we have in the church as well. I think it's a very common thing. It's, it, it's easy to, to point at the world around us and go, well, that's what, that's what people think about Jesus, about God. But at the same time, we in the church have the same problem. Is that we, we have an expectation of, of, of coming to Christ. There's a reason when, when you talk to other pastors or when, when Sarah and I have been to trainings for church planting and stuff like that. They're clear. They're, they say that some of the most common times that people begin going to church are transitions in life. Moving, having children, having marital problems, having financial problems. Any of those times that cause conflict in their lives oftentimes are the catalyst for people going to church. Because I think sometimes, and, and, and unfortunately I believe that the church peddles this, is it's almost like we tell people that if you just add Jesus to your life, everything's going to get better. You know, live your life and add Jesus to it, and, and things are going to get better. The problem is, that's not, that's, that's not entirely true. It's not true. Because if it were true, we would come to Christ not for the fact that He is our prize. We would come to Christ for the things that He gives us. As John Piper would say, we would be elevating gift above the giver. And then our worship and our prize of what we long for are the things that He might give to us and not Jesus, who is the gift. See, the, the thing is, we don't, we don't often want to think about that. We want the church to be the political impact on our country. We want our country to think in the same terms that the church does, but the problem becomes is that those in the church don't actually think with a Christian worldview at times. We think with an earthly worldview, much like these guys do. Well, we want the church to restore morality to our country. Well, we'll look at Acts 19 when the gospel comes to Ephesus for the first time. Paul doesn't come and preach morality. He doesn't come and say, change your life. He brings the gospel. And the supernatural result of the gospel taking hold of the lives of people is that their lives are transformed. I think so many times we see things reversed. And that we want things to be good. And we want things to be better. Because we believe in Jesus. Guys, it, it didn't end well for the apostles. It didn't end well for the guys who were the closest to, to, to Jesus. Including his brother. Read through their stories. For anybody, maybe, maybe John's the one that comes best to him. He's, of course, boiled alive and sent to live in exile for the end of his days. And that's the best of kids. Others are beheaded, hung upside down on a cross, thrown off the top of the temple, beaten with clubs, beheaded. It doesn't end well for many. But eternity is amazing. See, the issue becomes is that we often want what, what we think following Jesus will give us. 
Well, if I just follow Jesus, my life will be wonderful. If I just follow Jesus, things will be good. If I just follow Jesus, my marriage will be better. If I just follow Jesus, my bank account will be better. If I just follow Jesus, my kids will behave more. But, but that, that, that may be true. It also may not be true. The difference about what it means when we follow Christ is understanding what our prize is, understanding what we get, understanding what, what the gift ultimately is. Our gift is Him. Our gift is Jesus. That's what our ultimate prize is. And even the idea of, you know, we always pitch away eternity, you get to go to heaven. But even with that, our gift in eternity is Jesus. Because we get to spend eternity with Him. Heaven isn't what we see in pop culture and cartoons where you know, wear robes and play harps and fish all day or play golf all day or do whatever we want. No, no, the joy of heaven is that we're in the presence of God. Heaven is not a place for people who don't want to go to hell. Heaven is a place for people who love Jesus. And in essence, if, if our idea of I want to follow Jesus so my life's good, so I don't, I don't go to hell. And it, 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 we're we're going to be potentially disappointed. And it's not all that we want. It's not all that we have on it. I think we have to look at these guys and take a reflection of it and say, how many times do we choose that we want to follow Jesus for our own selfish desires, our own selfish needs, our own selfish wants, as opposed to following him because of who he is? We need to be reminded that God's purpose, God's ultimate purpose, is his glory. Everything that is done is that God would be glorified. And we don't, there's things that we don't like to think about that. Oftentimes we go through pain that God might be glorified in us. Is God not truly glorified? I mean, when, when, when we say when we follow him and now that we have money and we get to drive a BMW and a Mercedes, or is God glorified when we have nothing? And we say, I've got everything I need. I have Jesus. It's all I need. Those are the things that we have to think about. What is the chief end of man? It's, it's, it's a very famous confession. What is the chief end, end of man? To glorify God. That's why we exist. Jesus is receiving that glory as he does this. And it's, it's, you know, we see it, we can kind of laugh about it. The next one is we see that the Pharisees, they, the Pharisees don't get it. As, as, we, as we continue to move through the passage, the Pharisees, they don't get it. They see what happens and look at their response. They're like, basically like Jesus, like, shut your, shut your people up. What are they doing? Like, why are they worshiping you? And so this is, to me, this is an important one in verse Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, these were silent. The very stones would cry out. One of the arguments that people attempt to make, it's a poor argument, it's not a very good one, is they say that Jesus never claims to be God. Jesus isn't really God because he never claims to be God. And maybe your argument can say that he never says the exact words, I am God. Maybe he never says those words. But it's clear. And he says, they ask who he is, and he says, well, well, I am. Have, tell them the Lord has need of your God. Well, that's, that's kind of what they think, too. Look at this part. He accepts the worship of the people. 
This is an important one. Because here's, 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 where, here's where it has to make sense. Jesus cannot be a good teacher, a moral teacher, a good person, and accept worship from his followers at the same time. Those would be mutually exclusive. Because if Jesus is not God, and he accepts worship from his followers, we have a word for that, it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. He's violating the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. He's saying, oh, by the way, it's actually okay, you should worship me. He forgives sin, only God can do so. It's a very clear acceptance of who he is. He doesn't, if, and then when challenged on it, I mean, think about this. If you were a good rule teacher whose job is to follow the Torah, to follow Jewish tradition, when confronted, he'd have been like, you know what, guys, you're right. You're right. You all should stop worshiping me. But what does he say? No. No. Uh-uh. I'll accept it. Why? Because he's, he's God. He's, he's worthy of all things. It's easy to back on the Pharisees when it comes to that, isn't it? I mean, it is, right? You're like, dude, how do these guys, what do these guys do this things, do they? Like, how do they, how do they not see this? Test your question, how many detected you made sure they got the credit for something good you did? Jesus tells us to make sure that your right hand doesn't know what the left hand is. We have times in ministry and we've done things and we want to make sure people know that we've done it. Or maybe we don't want to advertise it because we don't want to be self-promoting. But we are hurt or we're upset people don't give us credit for what we've done. I do so much and nobody ever says anything. Nobody ever notices. You know, i the first person to say, it's not fun when you do lots of Hard. But then the question begs, who are we serving with our actions? Who are we promoting with our good works? Or is it self-promotion? Do we want to make sure that people know how wonderful we are? Or is our goal to point to Jesus? You guys got me a t-shirt a couple years ago. Increase uh, the gospel, die, and be forgotten. It's interesting because the guy, they, they, they actually attribute the quote to the guy who said it. Who well, I'm sure, if you do, would probably be like, guys, the whole point of that is that my name is not a teacher, it's for pastors to wear. But, it makes sense. Is that ultimately, if, if our job is a pastor and then our job is followers of Jesus, it's to leave a legacy that people remember much more about who Jesus is and much less about who So if we worship, and if we worship, and then we find a way to serve, and then we're frustrated, and we're angry because we don't get enough credit or enough thanks or enough appreciation for what we've done, then ask the question: Are we, are we seeking to get the credit? Are we seeking to get the praise? Or are we seeking people with praise Jesus for, for what's happening? Pharisees are the same way. They're, they, you know, they. They don't want Jesus to be, to be worshipped. He's the one who's worthy of all worship. I mean, guys, when we do good things, it's a reflection of who Jesus is. It's 
really Jesus who does good things through us. You go love your neighbor, it's because the Holy Spirit empowered you to do so. Pushed you, encouraged you, provoked you that you might do that good for your neighbor. You shared the gospel. It's not that, that, that you know, look how wonderful. No, it's, it's the Holy Spirit who does so. I love his response. And he says, well, you know, hey, tell them to be quiet. He's like, listen, man, I'm God. I'm going to be working. And it's either the people or some rocks. It's one of those things that I've always had in life just love crazy about. When you think about back in the Old Testament, you see Balaam's donkey, right? He's the one, he, he speaks the word of God. I mean, God can do anything. You, you might be, it's for part of me, you know, it would be amazing to see rocks cry out and worship of God. But then I also think it would be awful to be at the point that that's what had to happen. Because it means if I'm sitting around a bunch of rocks that are worshiping God, it means mean that I haven't been doing it. So as cool as it would be, I, I think uh, what would cause it would actually not be very cool. And I don't think we would actually want to experience or to see that. Even like the talking donkey probably would not be as cool as we think. Because it would be spoken in rebuke. I think we saw the, the rocks worship. I think at first we might be like, man, this is really cool. And then our spirits would grieve because we'd be like, uh-oh. They're worshiping because I'm not. According to the four, John Piper says that everything exists that God would be worshipped. Evangelism, missions all exist because there's a lack of worship. And we kind of see that here. Jerusalem ultimately rejects Jesus and their rejection leads to their destruction. Jerusalem's rejection leads to their destru destruction. Look what he does. He looks over them. And he even talks about what is to come that you guys don't know. In 70 AD, Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is destroyed. And Jesus sees it. It falls, about, it falls about 40 years later. And they have lost sight of who God was. How do I know that? Because they don't worship Jesus as he enters in. Unfortunately, we see that a lot. Not, and, and listen, I, don't, I mean, I do care about what happens in culture, but I care about what happens in culture when it comes to how they, how they view God a lot less than I care about how the church views God. Because ultimately, the church doesn't view God properly. And how in the world does the culture hear about Jesus? So what we've seen is we've seen a significant rise in, uh, in, in Christian denominations, or, and I would say they were nominal denominations, they're, they're Christian in name only, who don't teach the basics of the Christian faith. And Stetsery, the missiologist, um, is, is, is his title, he has a, like a PhD, he like PhD, I believe, in, in like studying missions and church and, and all these things. He wrote an article a few years ago that they like Christianity as less, if they continue in their current rate, they have less than 30 Easter's before they will no longer exist. That's crazy. And that is like mind-blowing. And these are, some of these denominations are denominations that were the largest in our country 50, 60 years ago. They robust, the largest denominations. Why is that? How have they, they fallen off the, off the face of the earth? Well, what we've seen is we've seen people begin to deny 
the tenets of our faith that are necessary to be a Christian. What do I mean by that? Well, what we're talking about right now, Easter, the birth, perfect life, death, substitution, substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Guys, if we don't believe in that, we cannot truly claim to be a Christian because that is a very central tenet to our faith. If we go, well, Jesus is a way to God and not the way to God, then we would cease to be Christian. Because Jesus himself is clear on that. I am the only way to the Father is what he tells us. He doesn't say, I'm a way, I'm one of the ways, I might be one of the better ways. He doesn't say all paths lead to the Father. He said, I'm it. I am the only way. And I get it. I get it. Sometimes we begin to maybe deny these things because we say, well, it's very exclusive. We leave people out. And if we leave people out, then what happens if people don't, don't want to come be part of it? Because they, they feel left out. People well, argue that's not true. The bitterness, maybe. I mean, think about it. After you were a little kid, I don't know as a kid, we always tease each other about, you know, if we were mad, like, well, I don't want to my birthday party. That's kind of a joke. Have you ever been excluded when you were a kid? You might, you walk away and you're like, well, I don't be friends with them anyways, and you're lying to yourself and everybody else. Because the more excluded you are, the more you can be part of the club. The cooler it is. See, the issue is when we make Christianity a, a, a complete reflection of the culture, and we say, and we're as pluralistic in the church as the culture is, then what is the point? How is Christianity any different than any other social club? I'm going to tell you, it's, it's, a, it's a bad one. It's a terrible social club. If we come to church and, and, and we're not here to worship Jesus, and we're just here to hang out, and then we're, we don't have the money and the facilities that other social clubs have, because that's not our point. That's not our, our purpose. And it's not an excuse to do ministry poorly. It's not an excuse to not take care and, and to not steward what God's given us. Because that's, that's, that's a poor reflection of our belief in stewardship. But it's also a poor belief in our stewardship if we try to look like everybody else. I was talking to a friend the other day, and he was talking about how some churches have coffee bars. Like, you know, we have a coffee bar, you have coffee, and all that kind of stuff. So you guys, I mean, I, I would go to church before they had, like, they, they had, like, the espresso machine and all that kind of stuff. And it's cool. I think it's, you know, if that's your thing, that's your thing. Um, we don't do that. I thought it was, hey, if you want fancy Starbucks coffee, go to Starbucks. And, and, and talk to your neighbors. Talk to the people in your community. And get good coffee. So I'm going to be completely honest with you. I have never been to a church that does a coffee bar like that whose coffee is as good as the professionals. I mean, it's just not. It's not a, why is just some volunteer back there who learned in like 20 minutes and who does it like once a month because he's on a rotation with like four other people. Uh, like anything else, the more you do it, the better you get at it. You make coffee more and more, you're, you're just going to get better at it than you are if you make it, you know, three, time, three times a month. It's just the reality of things. Well, I always tell people, like, listen, if we're like, our, we're going to do a coffee shop in our church, we're not going to do as good a one. Because we're relying on volunteers who are like, you know, I work a full-time job, I come to church and I volunteer to do this, and I don't really 
learn or practice or any of those things, and uh, yeah, sure, here's, here's something that's, that's probably resembling close to what you want. Right? But the problem is so many times we try to make the church look like that. Guys, that's not our job as the church. Our job as the church is not to reflect the culture. Our job as the church is not to be a social club that, that, that rivals social clubs in the community. Our job as the church is to be a place, a people, a group of followers of Christ who reflect who he is and who take the gospel to the world around us. And when we do anything less than that, we're not good at it, because that's not what we're supposed to do. We've heard so many churches say this, but we've tried everything. We've tried everything. We've done daycare. We've done soup kitchens. The big popular one up here is, oh, we've had a, we've had a thrift store. We've, we've done ladies' group. We've, we've done... Well, we've done everything short of preaching the gospel. We haven't preached the gospel. We haven't proclaimed Jesus. We haven't been like the disciples who threw our coats down and throw the palm branches down and who scream, Hosanna, here comes the Lord, and here comes the Messiah. And when that is the case, of course our churches die. Of course our churches struggle because we cease to be churches. Just like these Pharisees. On the flip side of that, they, they abuse their power. We see, people, we see churches where that's the issue, where it's abuse of power, where, where pastors, where clergy are abusive. And I, and I, I'm, of course, you know, I'm, there is the, the sexual scandal that come up. And I think those go without saying. But we see somewhere where pastors and, and clergy are bullies, and they bully the people in their, in their congregation. It's toxic, and it's, and I, I don't mean, you know, the, the kind where, we you don't know, well, I've heard that, and I can be accused of some, some of the things where we're like, well, that pastor says things that hurts my feelings. Well, that's not really spiritual abuse. If your pastor preaches from the Word of God and bothers you, that's not necessarily spiritual abuse, that's probably conviction that we just don't really like. But there's a difference. See, the conviction drives us to God. It forces us to, re to respond to Him. What I mean by abuses would be driving people away from Him. And we see the Pharisees doing this. They abuse their power. They keep extra rules and extra requirements on the people in order for them to be able to please God. I think of fundamentalism in our culture that so many times people equate Christianity to this concept of fundamentalism. You know, I've heard it, I've heard people talk about it, you know, and then they'll ask me. And, 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 and people have been jerks about it, but I definitely like people ask, like, you know, are you allowed to dance? Are you allowed to go to movies? Do you play cards? Do, do the girls in your church that have like super long hair and wear the long skirts? And I'm like, we don't add extra things to the Bible. You, you don't have to do all those things to prove that you that you love Jesus. You live morally according to scripture as a response to Jesus. There's a huge difference. And then we see Jesus' response. He's not angry with I think there is some anger in him because he's God. But look how he look how he talks to them. When he drew near verse 41 and saw the city, he wept over it. 
He saw Jerusalem, and he knew how far they were from him. And they knew, he knew they would reject God. And what happens? He weeps. His heart was broken over the lostness of the city of Jerusalem. Church, when was the last time our hearts were broken? When was the last time we wept over the lostness of Charleston? You come in from somewhere else, you come over the token, it's nice to be all of Charlestown, out next to you. When was the last time we walked all to Charlestown with broken hearts? We wept over the people who just don't know him. We should be for our city lost and penetrates. I shared the statistics before. Less than 10% of people in Charlestown, in Boston in general, would identify as, as Christians. And what I mean by Christians is people who place their not cultural, not anything else, but people are truly repentant and place their faith in Christ, less than 10%. We struggle with idolatry like they do. There's this false religion. In our community, the idols are money, success, addiction. It's easy to look at one and the other, hence conversations, and, 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 and it's important for us to understand there's two camps, and there's one where we love sin, and then there's the response to that, well, all sin is sin. Yes and no. All sin is equally condemning. All sin is equally damning. Not all sin has the same earthly consequences. Unfortunately, there's some sin that is respected on earth that we hold up and we say, well, that's wonderful. You work 100 hours a week, and you're super successful, and you make a half a million dollars. Well, people think that's the, think you're great. If your sin is, is seeking attention and, and having a million followers on TikTok and Instagram, so people monetize you and, and you make money and people care about what you think, we, we think that's awesome. But then we look at the person, look at the homeless people who are struck out. And we go, oh, that's, that's horrible, guys. Those sins are just as condemning, just as damning as the other. Maybe the earthly consequences are the same, but the eternal ones are equal. All sin will condemn us. All sin will keep us from God. And it's a reminder that we should look at our city. We should respond as Jesus does with the desire to be worship. We should have a dream and a desire to see God move and to transform our community. We should look at this passage and see how they respond to Jesus and say, you know, is that in my own life? Is that how I respond to the Jesus of Christ? Is that how I respond when I think of the things of God? Why immediately bow down and worship in all? Or do I desire that God has chosen in my life and makes things cool and wonderful and great? Who do I identify with in the story? Who do I identify with the disciples and the followers? Who do I identify with the Pharisees? In Jerusalem and rejection. If you're, if you're watching the line or you're here, 
you're hearing these things as we've talked about this, you know, as we know that this is Jesus' last entry into Jerusalem. And in a few days he'll be betrayed and then killed and then resurrected. We don't do this just so we have like a really cool day and an awesome day to invite people to church. Our entire belief system teaches upon the happening of the following That Jesus goes to the cross and he might die for the sins of his people. And then he's resurrected and it shows us the power that he has over sin and death by coming back. How do we respond to that? Well, as we begin to see in the book of Acts, and we begin to see after his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, we see the gospel being preached and proclaimed. And we're told how to respond. That we repent, we believe, we turn away from our attempts at either rejecting God or appeasing God. We turn to him and we place our faith in Jesus who died on the cross, knowing that we have no So if you're watching this morning online or you're here in person and you're hearing this for the first time, let me just encourage you, let me challenge you, let me plead with you this morning to place your faith in Jesus. Knowing that is the only hope that we have. Knowing that He is God, incarnate, came to die for the sins. I would ask you to trust him. As it says, Zechariah, that he, the king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Salvation comes in the person of Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. And I would encourage you to place your faith. If you have questions in your mind, please click the box, email us, and get such a Grab myself, grab Pastor Sam. I need to talk to you about what it means.